Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. Thank you. This is part two of Holocaust Dilemmas. You can listen to part one on all the popular streaming platforms. This week's title is The Capo, which took place in 1943, bang in the middle of the Holocaust. Rabbi Hirsch. So, Itzik Kozolczyk had no idea about his own father's past. He knew that his father had been through the war in Poland and that he had come to Israel after the war, where he had passed away in the early 1950s when Itzig was still a child, but he knew little else. In fact, he tried tracing him by looking through the large Besak Forest Cemetery in Tel Aviv, but couldn't even find a tombstone. So this Itzig grows up, gets married, and one day when he's 60 years old, as they were driving from Haifa to Tel Aviv, his wife says to him, I found out about your father, and I have found people who knew him during the war, and we are on our way to see them. But the main news that his wife would have to break to him was not simply the fact that his father had been through the Holocaust, but that he had been a capo in Auschwitz, and not just a capo, but in charge of Block 11 in Auschwitz I, for those who visited the museum, that is the, the prison block at the end of the pathway in the corner, next to Block 10, where medical experiments were carried out. What do we know about him? What brought him to Auschwitz? What was the history? So, interestingly, for a man unknown to his son, we actually know nowadays quite a lot about him. He was born in Kriniki in Poland in 1902. By the age of eight, his parents had both died and he was raised in an orphanage. And even as a child, he was renowned for his phenomenal strength and he grew into a giant of a man. In 1927, he traveled to Cuba and worked in the port there as a schlepper. But he also performed on stage and in public, and he made somewhat of a living by doing that. But in 1930, he smuggled himself into the United States. This was the era of prohibition. And he ended up working for people in the underworld involved in this endeavor. He was caught, and he spent a year in jail. In 1932, he worked for Al Capone, the gangster, and one of his more unusual jobs happened in 1936 when he was the bodyguard to Max Schmeling, the Nazi boxing champion who famously beat Joe Lewis in that year at the Yankee Stadium. In 1938, he leaves the States and he embarks on a world tour, possibly with a circus. And when he gets to Poland, he stays. He gets married. He has two children. 
And then war breaks out in Poland. And unfortunately, in late 1942, his wife and two children were transported to Treblinka. And in January 1943, Jakob Kozolczyk was also placed on a cattle truck, this one to Auschwitz. Whilst en route, he broke one of the wooden slats of the cattle truck and removed a plank. But he himself was far too large to be able to fit through the gap, although he helped others escape through it. On January 26th, he arrives in Auschwitz, and they immediately notice his stature, his size. And anybody with an unusual physique of any type who arrived in Auschwitz was brought to the attention of the SS doctors in charge of the selections on that particular day. So they take him to one side, and Kozalczyk takes out a, a letter that he shows the Nazis that proves that he was the bodyguard of Max Schmeling, who was a hero to the Nazis. And he is assigned a, I guess we could call it a job, in Auschwitz. He becomes the capo in charge of Block 11. And of his transport of 2,300 Jews who arrived, 2,100 were gassed on arrival. Can you explain what Block 11 is for the ones who haven't been to Auschwitz? So... Block 11 contains punishment cells because even within Auschwitz, there were, I guess you could say, better and worse places to be. And the block also contains, next to it, to, to the left, the wall of death. And it is in Block 11 where the Nazis first experimented with Zyklon B in late 1941. And he is in charge. Um, he is given a room of his own there, which was unheard of in 1943 for a Jew, because until 44, all the capos were either German political prisoners or Polish inmates. And his job is to keep the cells clean, feed the prisoners, remove the corpses, lead condemned people to execution, not just Jews, but Poles, in fact, mainly Poles at the time. And then to put them on the death wagon, you know, after the event. And he has the keys to all the cells. He also has to carry out hangings when the victims were to be killed that way. And he becomes known as the hangman of Auschwitz. And he does this for the next two years. He arrives in January 43. The death march out of Auschwitz is in January 45. He subsequently survives the war. And after the war, he meets an Auschwitz survivor in a DP camp who he marries, and they have a child while still there. He then succeeds in getting smuggled into Israel or Palestine as it was at the time in 1946. And in 1947, he brings his wife and son to Israel. But in September 46, while he is there, on his own in Israel, the Haaretz newspaper wrote about his activities in Auschwitz and named him as the capo of Block 11, uh, describing him in less than positive terms. And the article ends by saying, it is said that he has fled to Israel. Where is he? So that's all they knew, that he was in Israel, nothing else. 
So it seems, and of course by labelling him a capo, it was sort of the mark of Cain in Israel, especially at the time. And I'll come back to what he does with this newspaper article, but let's move forward to 47, when his wife and child are with him. And he now makes a living as a performer, a strongman, living in and near Tel Aviv. And then Haaretz prints more articles about him. And his wife, who knew nothing about this, she finds out the truth. And remember, she's an Auschwitz survivor herself. So she just picks up and leaves and takes her son with her. And she will never mention her husband again to her son, Itzik. He is told that his father has died. And in fact, she remarries. And Itzik Kozalczyk will know nothing further for the next 55 years of his life. And in fact, within a couple of years of that happening, in 51, we now move to 1953, Yakov Kozalczyk, the father, dies. He's alone, he's abandoned, and he's mourned by nobody. So, a sad story perhaps, but one that's not unexpected. Someone who was a capo wasn't going to live easily after the war. How do we understand what the capos did? How are we supposed to relate to them? So, Elie Wiesel, who is one of the most eloquent chroniclers of the Holocaust, has a number of interesting, one could even say powerful, observations. They are not to be found in his main books, but I came across a series in the first part of his autobiography, which was originally published in French, Tous les fleurs vont à la mer, which is part of a posuk in the first chapter of Coheles, All Rivers Run to the Sea, and uh, part two of the biography finishes, so to speak, the verse, but the river is never filled, and he reflects on the capos that he knew, some from afar and some very close to home, and he writes, and I will quote from the book, what happened to my aunt Zlati, my father's younger sister? She was married to Nachman Elia. I don't remember their two very young children, but Nachman Elia, it seems, was deported with the first transport and succumbed to the pressures and temptations of the camp and became a cruel and murderous capo. It seems that eventually he was tried and sentenced to death and executed by former deportees, perhaps after the war. My uncle? In the enemy's service, a capo, my uncle, a torturer of his brothers in misfortune. I don't want to believe it, but that's the way it was. How to explain my uncle Nachman Elia, I cannot. All I know is that I utter his name with embarrassment. And he then writes, with a single exception, no rabbi agreed to become a capo. All refused to barter their own survival by becoming tools of the hangman all preferred to die. The lessons of the prophets and the sages became shields for them. On the other hand, how many secular humanists and intellectuals renounced their value system the moment they grasped its uselessness, disoriented and disillusioned. Some allowed themselves to be seduced by the ideology of cruelty. Their number was significant. Let me make it clear, he goes on to say, not all the inmates with privileges were evil. The Greek Stubendienst in my block 
Jacob Fardo wasn't mean. Ask Jackie Handeli of Salonika, a fellow Auschwitz inmate, and he will tell you. Fardo never struck a prisoner. The fact is that there were good people even among the ghetto police and the capos. But then there were those who were attracted by the killer's power, such as the son of a great Polish Zionist leader, a capo in Auschwitz, who tortured, humiliated and beat his fellow Jewish prisoners, especially if they were religious and even more if they were Zionists. Was it to punish his father and take revenge against those who had believed in him? So he seems to be making the point that although not all the capos were cruel, the reality is that many, if not most of them, were. Yes, but he struggles with it. In fact, he tells a very insightful story. One day, two lawyers from Brooklyn knock at his door when he was in Boston University. They had found out that a Hasid had been a vicious capo during the war who had beaten their father whilst he was in the camp and almost killed him. And they come to Wiesel and they say to him, you know, you know this guy. Sometimes you go to the shul that he attends and you even chat with him now and then. And what had happened was that their father had confronted this man in the camp whilst he was distributing soup, exhibiting uh, excessive cruelty. And their father had sort of laid into him saying, you know, have you no shame? Have you forgotten you're a Jew? And that night, the capo and his followers came to punish the man. They wrapped him in a blanket and they beat him up. And it was a miracle that he survived. And decades later, walking in Brooklyn, the father recognized the capo by his voice and his sons had sworn vengeance. And for them, you know, terror law was above all else. And they wanted Wiesel's advice. How should they apply it to the uh, Hossid that they were accusing? And Wiesel says, you know... I asked them detailed, painful questions. Maybe his memory has deceived him. Maybe it was somebody else. It was possible. And Wiesel once said to me that he had mentioned to them that were their father to have stood before him and were the father to be asking the question, then Wiesel's answer would have been different. But they, the sons, never faced the issue in their lifetime and couldn't be the judge of what people had done. He says that, you know, the sons informed Wiesel that they intended to report him to the police as well as to the Israeli authorities, and, you know, how could he dissuade them? And he observes generally, you know, what could be done about the capos? So I will quote again from what he writes. Should they be prosecuted? By whom? The Jewish capos were not innocents, but I cannot judge them. I prefer to emphasize the kindness and compassion of my brothers in misfortune. These qualities were found even in the kingdom of the darkest night, as I can testify. The Jewish soul was a target of the enemy. He sought to corrupt it, even as he strove to destroy us physically. But despite his destructive force, despite his corrupting power, the Jewish soul remained beyond his reach. I remember a Dutchman, he writes, who shared his bread with a comrade sicker than he, a comrade he did not know. I prefer to be hungry than to feel remorse. I remember too a young Hungarian Jew, his shoulders stooped like an old man's, who confessed to some infraction so as to be beaten in his uncle's stead. I am young, he said, and stronger than he. He was young, 
but no less weak. He did not survive the beating. I could not describe the SS Blockführer, nor the Lagerführer who attended hangings. Strangely, the murderers did not interest me, only the victims. So the subject, you know, is an emotional one to answer your question. It's a difficult one. Ultimately, we know the actions were wrong, even if we, 75 years later, cannot necessarily condemn the individuals outright, simply because we weren't there to know what we would have done. The Capos generally carried out actions which were appalling, although there is a fascinating truva from Robert Aronson, whom we mentioned last week, regarding a Capo whom he convinced to save a Hasidic rabbi in Auschwitz III, by promising him a portion in the world to come, and eventually the capo wanted a din Torah. It's, it's a fascinating truva. Don't have time for it now, but uh, there were different types. Well, so the story of the capo Yaakov Kozalchik is like many other capos, I guess. Well, here is the tragic part. The story of Yaakov Kozalchik is actually heartbreaking. And I want to thank Rabbi Yossi Cohen in Eretz Yisrael for bringing his name to my attention initially. Because Yaakov Kozalczyk was an innocent. In Auschwitz, despite the task given to him, he remained an angel, not a demon. And therefore, going back to 1946, when that newspaper article first surfaced, he made his way to Otto Preschburger, another survivor, who was also by that time living in Israel, and said, I need somebody to write a letter for me to prove that the things that they say about me are not true. Who is Otto Preschburger? He was an inmate in Auschwitz I, at one point on the verge of dying of hunger. I mean, everybody was starving, but he was literally about to pass on. And he was told, find a way to get to Block 11 after nightfall and ask for food. So he's got nothing to lose, and he makes his way somehow past the searchlights and gets to the entrance of Block 11, and he finds a giant of a man standing there at the barracks door. And Preschburger looks at him and says, a bissel breit, a little bit of bread. And the giant disappears into the barracks and returns with a slice of bread. And in his testimony, Preschburger says, I don't know if you can imagine what the value of a slice of bread was in Auschwitz. And he went back at least 20 times during his time in Auschwitz, knocked on the door and got food. Because Kozalczyk was in charge of the block, which means that he was the one who gave out food to the prisoners and had access to it in a place where food was non-existent. So he is well aware of what Kozalczyk has done. And he knows of others that have been helped at great risk. So he gets together a group of people who sign. One survivor was Schrager Nitzberg, who was sentenced to seven days in the Ste bunker in Block 11, which meant that during the day he would still have to do slave labor as usual, but at night, instead of lying down on a bunk in one of the barracks, he would have to stand in a prison cell, which was so tiny that there was no place to do anything else, and basically very few people survived the experience. And when he is brought to Block 11, the capo, who he didn't know, but who was Yaakov Kozalczyk, says to him, Bistu Ayid, are you Jewish? 
Because we have to remember that in Auschwitz I, over 50% of the inmates were non-Jewish, uh, Polish, uh, Russian prisoners of war, very different to the uh, vast area of Birkenau of Auschwitz II, where the majority, the vast majority were Jewish. So Nitzberg answers in Yiddish that he is Jewish, and Kozolczyk brings him into one of the rooms in this block, closes the door behind them both, and in Yiddish he says to him, Shrei, shout. And instead of Kozolczyk hitting him, he hits the tables so that the SS should think that he's beating up this Jew, but he's actually doing nothing of the sort. More than that, he says to him, listen, I have to try to get you to survive, so we will do as follows. We will wait until the block SS Führer leaves for the evening. And initially, he leads him to the standing cell. And then late at night, when there are no Nazis on the premises, he takes him out of the standing cell and brings him to his own bed. And Kozolczyk sleeps on the floor. And he gives the prisoner food, his own food. And he does this every night for that week. And he wakes him up early in the morning before any Nazis came back. He's taking the risk of defying the Nazis. And he's literally risking his life. No question about it. And at one stage, Kozolczyk says to him, you remind me of the child. He didn't say my child, but presumably he was talking about his own child, who he pretty much understands is no longer alive. And then there is Yecheved Galili, who at the age of 18 was brought to Block 11 for crimes of state. The other women in her room, so to speak, were Polish, and she, the sole Jew, is noticed by Kozolczyk who would bring her food from time to time. And the night before she was to be executed at the Wall of Death, he gets her out, out of Block 11. He gives gold to the guards, and he arranges for her to be reassigned in Auschwitz. And in 2016, she participates in a documentary in Israel and testifies that she survived only because of him. So as you can imagine, these people back in 1946, when they're contacted by Preshburger, they write letters to the newspaper. But it ended up as an article buried in one of the back pages, which is simply unbelievable. You can still find it online. And further articles appear accusing him, one of which, as we said, Yakov Kozolczyk's wife sees, and she then leaves him. And in 1953, he meets one of the people he helped survive. They are on a bus. He's on the back row of this bus, and he is shattered. He is sitting there in despair. He's almost non-functioning. He's lost the will to live. And a short while later, he dies of a broken heart, and there isn't even anything written on this tombstone to mark where he is buried. And this tragic ending is a result of the editor of Haaretz's articles in the newspaper. How do we view him? So I would not want to be inhabiting the level of Gehenna that this editor currently is at. Um, but if we ever needed to see how powerful slander and rachilus is, and how even if things seem to point in a certain direction, that you still require first-hand knowledge before any accusation, then this story would be proof of that. Fast forward 55 years. When the son Itzig finds out about his father's past, his first reaction is, my children can't find out about this. 
However, fortunately, as he delves deeper into this and through the efforts of his wife, he finds out the truth. And the son makes an emotional trip back to Auschwitz. He's allowed to be filmed in block 11. And he is shown that on one of the doors in that block, a sort of artist's drawing of a very large head on the door with the word capo underneath it, which is presumably a drawing of Yaakov. And while he's there, he hears testimony from Polish non-Jews. Louisa Janusz as an example, who says that from a capo, you would have expected cruelty and vile language. But that was not how Yaakov Kozolczyk behaved. As for the anonymous tombstone, this is now rectified through the efforts of Amir Haskell, who was a brigadier general in the Israeli Air Force. And he takes this case and he inscribes a matseva and part of it reads... He is a holy individual, a warrior, and this is how he will be remembered forever. So I guess that was some comfort that his son eventually found out the truth about his father's heroic actions. Yes, but overall, what a terrible tragedy. He never managed to live with his father, who was a, a hero, who was Mason Nefesh, but who was driven to a very early grave by empty accusations. His wife died without ever knowing it's a terrible fate. So, you know, what do you do if you're chosen for a task of the damned but want to retain your humanity in a place where there is no humanity and the chances are that you will join the majority? But he succeeded. That's the, the larger picture. But there are other issues which show how terrible and how limited life was for the Jews at the time. Well, we've run out of time, Rabbi Hirsch. I would have loved to hear more about the horrific decision that if someone was given a choice between becoming a capo and obviously being Messiah, helping the Nazi death machine, but on the other hand, also such opportunities arose for kindness and potentially saving lives, how one makes that decision, both philosophical points and even a halachic point, maybe we so, can... Yeah, on Tisha B'Av, um, I will hope to touch on it. Thank you very much again. Please tune in for next week for The Fugitive, which took place in 1944. As usual, any feedback, questions, suggestions for future topics can be emailed to podcasts at jle.org.uk. This podcast is being streamed on all the popular platforms, including a new Jewish application called Yidpod, which has all the Jewish podcasts. It's highly recommended that you download. Thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch. Thank you.